Let's pray as we look closer at this text. Lord, as we come to sit under your word, please turn our hearts to your decrees. Please open our eyes that we can meditate on wonderful things from your word. Give us undivided minds to fear and honour you. And please, Father, satisfy us with your faithful love and grow our joy. In your name's sake we pray. Amen. Have you ever been accused of being the pot that called the kettle black? Do you know the expression? Uh, here's a, a picture coming up on the, on the screen, possibly. There we go. All right. So that's, that's the kind of picture the expression comes from. The pot calling the kettle black, it's a picture of, of both being heated over a fire and then they're singed on the, the bottom and the sides. It's, it's an expression used to convey that the criticisms or the faults that a person is aiming at someone uh, could just as well equally apply back to them. Uh, phrases in my house like, close the fridge door, uh, squeeze, squeeze from the bottom of the toothpaste, uh, take your plate to the kitchen when you get up, uh, phrases that may or may not have landed either myself or Catherine with the accusation of uh, the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, sometimes we need, uh, we, we, we need people to point out our, our blind spots, sometimes on trivial things, sometimes on bigger things. Uh, it's easy for us to base our, our estimation of ourselves uh, on, on those around us who we perceive to have greater faults than our own. And in Jonah chapter 2, the author holds up a mirror to Jonah and, and to us as the readers. And if we're not careful, we might end up being the pot that called the kettle black as we notice Jonah's fairly significant flaws along the way. And we're continuing our, our Jonah series into deep mercy. It's been a bit of a disjointed series. Part one was back at the end of April, uh, but now the next three parts is today and the next two Sundays. So if you missed that one back in April and you want to want to go back to the beginning of the story, you can grab it online on our podcast. Uh, today we're in chapter 2, and also the last verse of chapter 1, just to remind us uh, where we're at as well. We're going to walk through the passage uh, and sort of walk through it three times, noticing three different things. We're going to notice a, a messed up world, the maker's mercy, and that there's a lot to marvel at in here. So firstly, a messed up world. We pick up the story and Jonah is in a really bad situation. Now, if, if, you, if you've been tracking with the story, you know the story to this point. He's just been hurled into the water. Uh, if you don't know what happens next, if you have never heard this story, which has been made into a kid's story many times over, if you don't know it, then what you should expect is that's the end. Jonah's going to die. He's about to drown, surely, right? Um, here's our map from, from last time up on the screen uh, that shows the, the journey he was trying to make. And the reason why he was uh, making the journey uh, is because God told him to preach his message to the violent and wicked enemy nation Assyria in their capital, Nineveh. 
And in protest, Jonah tries to run away. And so instead of going to Nineveh from Israel, he heads across the Mediterranean Sea towards Tarshish, as far away as he could possibly conceive about going. And God sends this mega storm. And, he's, and he realizes the only way out of this for anyone is for him to get thrown overboard. Plus, if he does that, then he definitely doesn't have to go and preach in Nineveh because he'll be dead. And so he gets thrown overboard... And it's logical now to assume that he's going to die. But instead, something surprising happens. Surprising on many levels. Have a look with me at chapter 1, verse 17. If you've got your Bibles or a device, that's great. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the the context that couches the poem of chapter 2. If you are looking at your physical Bible, you'll you'll see that we we go from kind of block text narrative into a a poem, into a psalm. And, and, And it's a psalm in the context of this story, this narrative. And so chapter 2, verse 1, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. The surprise continues. Even after the, the sw- swallowing happens, sort of halfway through that previous verse, you think, okay, now, now for sure he's, he's definitely a goner. But, but no, now, now he's praying inside this fish. You've just, if, if you just watched a giant sea animal swallow someone whole, um, who's thinking, phew, that was a close one. Lucky you got out of that. <laughs> verse 2. He starts praying in there. He said... In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. His situation was really bad. I, uh, I walked the, the jetty late um, a little while ago with some of the youth leaders, and, uh, and it, was a, it was a bit of a, a windy, rough kind of night. And um, I don't know about you, but when you, you look out of the jetty on a rough night, it's pitch black, um, the thought of being in that water terrifies me. Um, there is no way I want to get in there. And that's, that's still close to shore. That's not the middle of the Mediterranean. It was really only probably a bit windy. Uh, but looking out over that water uh, at pitch black, getting rough, it's terrifying. Jonah thought he was on the fast track to death. And, and he recounts that experience now in this poem that is, is set inside this fish's stomach. And God put him there. Verse 3. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Okay, now hold up there a moment, Jonah. That, that, that is a little bit rich when you think about it. God is sovereign, true. Yes, he's in the water because God has put him there. But banished from God's sight, I mean, he places a lot of blame on God at this moment, doesn't he? When he's the one who's been doing the runner. But nevertheless, that is the emotion, that is the feeling. He, he's past that point of no return. He feels banished. He was about to die, and there was nothing he could do about it. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me. 
the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains I sank down uh, to the, the earth beneath barred me in forever. Jonah is a messed up prophet and he's now in a messed up situation. And his life is ebbing away, we're told in verse 7, like a receding tide, soon to be gone. But there's an elephant in the room we probably still need to talk about, isn't there? Or should I say a very large fish in the room? Uh, we, we have a story about a big fish eating someone alive. And I think the first thing to say is that the story is not about a big fish, but about a big God. It's not about a big fish, it's about a big God. But what do we do with the implausibility of a giant fish swallowing a man whole and sustaining his life for three days? Firstly, we say we believe the Bible, don't we? We believe the Bible. We believe the Bible to be God's authoritative word without error and true in all that it claims. Absolutely. It is God's word written through human hands. But it's God's word. And we want to hear what the divine author wants us to hear through the words of the human author who penned it down. So we believe that the Bible is intended to be read in its final literary form that we have it as a unified story that points to Jesus. Now, just to pause for a moment, if, if you're visiting with us this morning and that's not where you, you're at, uh, firstly, let me say I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. It's great to have you here. And secondly, if that's not where you're at and you would like uh, to know more on why I think those statements are entirely rational and logical and consistent with mine and your experience of life, I would love to chat with you more later on. Please take me up on that. And for all of us here who believe that, believe those truths about God's word, rather than getting distracted with 21st century Westerner questions about the plausibility of a man surviving three days inside a fish, let's take the text as it is. And let's focus on what we are meant to learn from hearing our maker speak through his word. Because there is nothing inconsistent in our worldview in believing that a fish could have actually swallowed Jonah and that God could have supernaturally sustained his life. We believe in a supernatural God who, who acts at times in miraculous ways because he's got particular purposes that he chooses to accomplish. And so as we deal with the text in its final form now, let's not focus on the, the two fish verses in a whole story, but rather what God wants to, us to hear through the pages of Scripture as we have it. I hope that deals with some of the elephant in the room. Um, so, so what are we meant to learn, though, from, from the fish swallowing and vomiting? Jonah is one of the prophets in the, the time leading up to the, the exile, the time when God's people nearly get wiped out and it's their fault. Their complete brokenness and failure to live in, in loving relationship with their creator as they were meant to do uh, has reached breaking point. And God will use enemy armies and empires to come and bring his divine justice. But also ultimately, redemption and restoration. And it's clear as you read this, this poem, this psalm, that the author of Jonah is very aware of other scriptures as he retells this story of Jonah's life. 
the author may well be an older Jonah reflecting back on these events in his life and wanting to communicate the truths about God, uh, some of which he didn't realize at the time. Um, but let me show you the, the sorts of scriptures that this author is aware of. Uh, have a look at Hosea. It's coming up on the screen. Hosea chapter 8, uh, verse, uh, verse 1. Or verse 8. I don't know that is verse 1. Sorry, I'm getting confused by the 8 at the start. That's chapter 8. Uh, put the, the trumpet in your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord, because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, Oh God, we acknowledge you, but Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. Then jumping down to verse 8. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations, like something no one wants. The exile here is described as Israel being swallowed up because of their rebellion against the Lord, their God. Well, Jeremiah 51 builds on this picture. Verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And the guy that took Daniel away, we had that series recently. The king of Babylon has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion he has made us an empty jar, like a serpent. That word you could translate, like a sea monster. He has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then has spewed us out. It's graphic imagery describing the experience of facing God's judgment through the hands of the Babylonian Empire. A sea monster swallowing and spewing. So a sea monster swallowing and spewing, it's, it's a picture of God's judgment, but also eventual redemption as well. And it's not just the prophets with this imagery. One psalm for you as well, Psalm 124, uh, verse 2. If the Lord had not been on our, our side when people attacked us, they would, would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. I mean, this is getting pretty obvious by this point, isn't it? Um, God's people's sin, it, it, it's, it's like drowning and being swallowed by a great sea beast. The image of being trapped inside of a fish is a picture of the Israelites' own faithlessness and then facing the consequences and then being redeemed on the other side. So we see we live in a messed up world, and we are the problem. The fish and the context causes us to ponder the experience of being a human being, created in our maker's image, living in a messed up world, trapped, facing the consequences for our own seizing autonomy from our maker, but experiencing God's mercy and rescue. Shared experience builds links and associations in your mind. Uh, in Bible college, I ended up playing uh, quite a lot of handball. Uh, not, the, not the European kind of professional sport version, but the, the high bounce ball, whack it with your hand kind of version. And um, we, we played enough that, it, that it, it came to this point where there was, there was a lot of guys at college who I could just, from a distance, we could just make eye contact and I could just get my, my hand and just kind of do that motion. 
and, uh, and then th they knew what that meant. They knew you want to play some handball and the game was on and off we go. Um, shared experience uh, builds links and associations. Most other people go like, what, what, what is that? What are you, what are you doing? Um, but, but we knew. Um, the, the fish is meant to bring to mind a particular mental image. As Jonah goes through this experience, uh, the, the author then, then uses that experience to bring these images to mind. It causes us as the reader to ponder the experience of being human. Again, created in our maker's image, living in a messed up world, trapped, facing the consequences for our seizing autonomy from our maker, but experiencing God's mercy and rescue. So we can use this chapter to, to help us think through, to help us process through our own experience and relationship to God, our maker. Which brings us to the second thing to notice, the, the maker's mercy. The maker's mercy. This is very clearly a psalm of thanksgiving. In verse 2, Jonah says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From, the, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Uh, this is just one example of so many elements of this psalm that tell us it's a psalm of thanksgiving. Two examples in the psalm, Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called for the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Or Psalm 120. I called to the Lord in my distress. And he answers me. So you see from those two little snapshots that this is a known type of psalm. Jonah is grateful for this surprising rescue and he wants to express it. And the author borrows countless imagery and phrases from the psalms to construct a, a sophisticated and beautiful psalm of thanksgiving and praise that we have before us. Jonah cried out and God answered. And that should come across loud and clear. But the answer is pretty severe, isn't it? I mean, he didn't just zip Jonah back to dry land. He swallowed him. <laughs> There's a curious tension here as well. Jonah is grateful for not being dead, but he's not really yet out of trouble, is he, either? I mean, if you were in the, the belly of a giant fish, would you be thinking, phew, glad all that ordeal's over? Uh, you'd probably still be thinking, hmm, better figure out a way out of here. <laughs> it's interesting he doesn't go there. Jonah is just surprised to be alive, and he's thankful. And God caused him in that space to look back, for Jonah to look back towards God. And so we read in the middle of the song, uh, verse 4, the second half of it, yet again, I will look toward your holy temple. The temple, that's a symbol of God's blessing and presence and life in, in connection with him. And so he looks back to his God and his blessing and presence and connection. God's severe mercy turned Jonah back to him. I was uh, once at the nature play park in Vass, the one that's got the big flying fox. And uh, it's a good flying fox for young kids because it's got the, the seat style, so they don't just have to hang on, they can, they can sit in a seat. And it was a busy Saturday, and um, 
uh, once one kid plays on it, suddenly like the entire park's worth of kids are there going, I want to turn. And so my kids are there and a whole heap of other ones. And um, the parents have kind of worked out this, this sort of system where we were really just kind of rotating around which parent would be in charge of controlling the line and checking whose turn it was and holding the seat and then letting them go down there. And then the older kids would bring the flying fox back. It was kind of chaotic, but kind of worked. And, um, and most of it was uh, probably an, an unspoken understanding. So if one parent came along, uh, along and showed a bit of interest in helping control and manage the line, that could be your clue just to kind of step away and uh, leave them to have their turn. And uh, I'd done it for a bit. Another dad was, was doing it. He, uh, he loads up one kid and he's got the line under control, the kid's in the chair ready to let it go and it's going to go down off the platform and along the bark chips. And then like out of nowhere, this tiny little girl appears and just as he lets this kid go, this girl manages to grab the back of the chair and, uh, and then just like launches off the platform and this little girl's just like dangling, holding onto the chair, shooting down. And, uh, and I'm thinking like, that could have been worse, she's still holding on for now. Um, but then, this, the, the, then another dad sees this and, uh, and wants, wants to help. And so, so he dives in to, to grab her and catch her, but she's actually holding on incredibly tightly. And so she just kind of slips through his fingers as he trips and falls onto the bark chip but not quite so tightly that after his attempt to catch her, that she doesn't then let go and fall about five metres further down the line on the bark chip. Um, it was really awkward. It was very awkward to watch this dad explain how he was trying to help uh, to the, the little girl's mother afterwards. And I'm just thinking, I'm glad that that wasn't me. He genuinely was trying to help, uh, but it went badly. Um, sometimes the attempt to save can cause more harm than good. And this kind of looks like it here, doesn't it? Severe, severe mercy. But the difference is with God. Because with God, there is no mistake. There's no letting go halfway. There's no failed attempt. God's mercy, no matter how severe, is the best thing that could ever happen to a human being. And that's the thing about this severe mercy we see in the story of Jonah's life that God may bring us to the very end of our rope so that we cry out. Jonah didn't need a theological argument. He didn't need a philosophical apologetic. He didn't need an inspirational meme. He needed to be eaten by a fish. And in God's mercy... He may deal with us in ways that bring us to the very end of ourselves, and we might even hate him for it. But the paradox of God's severe mercy is that it could be the best thing that ever happened to you. Because in it, we discover the truth, the truth of how how truly broken and selfish we are, that we've been taking our lives for granted like we can do whatever we want. The truth that the only reason I exist is because someone made me and I am not the captain of my own ship. And I actually make a terrible captain of my own ship. It it brings us to this place of, of utter desperation before our maker. Severe mercy. Jonah runs and he hits rock bottom and he realises God's mercy was pursuing him. 
turning back to God now finally looks attractive after he's been running, 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 running. Because God doesn't run away from runaways. God doesn't run away from runaways. So the only thing at this point that Jonah has going for him is that God was committed to him. Sometimes we need to sink deep, deep down to discover this truth of who we are. That we are frail human beings whose creator is for us with his mercy and his love and his grace. Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, had a wonderful reflection on Jesus. He said this, he said, The crowds call Jesus a friend of sinners as an indictment. But the label is one of unspeakable comfort to those who know themselves to be sinners. That Jesus is a friend of sinners is only contemptible to those who feel themselves not to be in that category. Jonah's circumstance teaches us the truth that God desires not some kind of great religious piety or sacrifice or ritual, but instead a broken spirit, a broken and contrite or repentant heart. That is something that God will never despise. He tells us that in Psalm 51. To say to God, I, I need you, I need you, I need you. I'm at the end of my rope. That's what his severe mercy does. You might be here this morning and and this might be close to home. You might be in that place or be reflecting back from being in that place not that long ago. And based on on Jonah and on God's word, I want to say, and it may sound strange, but it is a good place to be. Just like the fish was a good place to be because it turned Jonah back to God. Jonah said in verse 9, but, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I'll make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. He is genuinely thankful for the rescue. He thought he was dead for sure. Are you genuinely thankful for your rescue, for your life with Jesus? But there's more to be said about Jonah's response. Jonah is a very real and complex character. And do you smell a rat in this psalm of thanksgiving? Uh, Here's a a picture. Um, Or maybe I shouldn't be mixing metaphors. So is there something fishy going on? I couldn't help myself, I'm sorry. I had to. There is something fishy going on, isn't there? Did, did, did you notice it in, in this psalm of thanksgiving? How many times does Jonah say the word I? If you're counting in the NIV, you get to ten. How many times does he say my? Seven. How many times does he say me? Seven. That's a grand total of 24 references to himself in ten verses. Now, to be fair, this is somewhat expected in the style of a psalm of thanksgiving that's talking about an experience that the author had and God rescuing them. But it's also excessive in this case. It's beyond the normal. 
Verse 2, I called, I called. Verse 4, I will look again. Verse 7, I remembered you. Verse 9, I will shout with praise and thanks. Also, verse 9, I will make good my vow. This could be a chapter rejoicing in the salvation of the pagan sailors in the previous chapter, praising God for his work in their lives. We're about to see that Jonah's got very few words for the Ninevites that God wants to show mercy towards. It could have been a chapter of words of grace and deliverance for the Ninevites, but instead Jonah is focused on himself. And verse 8 is strange, right? He's thanking God for his rescue, but then starts talking about those who worship idols. In the context of the story, who are the idol worshippers that should come to mind? Well, the only options are the, the sailors, uh, or maybe the Ninevites. But the sailors, well, they were painted in a far better light than Jonah was in chapter 1. And they convert to worshipping the Lord God, despite Jonah, God's prophet, being absolutely no help at all to them. And so those guys actually come off looking pretty good by the end of the chapter. But Jonah says, verse 8, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Now he maintains one thing that he hasn't done, is outright reject God himself. He hasn't turned to fake gods, to idols. Now, that's, that's fair and that's true. He hasn't gone there. But he's in this terrible situation because he ran in defiance of God's word. And yet he sits what seems to be in self-righteous, arrogant judgment over the sailors and the Ninevites whilst he wears seaweed on his head. All this nauseating self-focus and self-righteousness gets too much and God ends it. He ends this, this psalm by commanding the fish, who seems all too happy to oblige in vomiting out Jonah onto dry land. It, it, it's, it's a comic response to Jonah's self-centred, ironic words and religious self-focus. Does he recognize before God how flawed and sinful and broken he is? See, the situation caused him to cry out for help. But he can't see the irony. Jonah is grateful, but he's unrepentant. He's self-centered, self-righteous, still defiant. And the thing to marvel at here... The thing to marvel at is that surprisingly, God still shows him mercy. I think in our entertainment, uh, we we like um, uh, a character uh, who's a bit complex. So a a, a self-focused, smug, hero kind of character in a story. Um, You know, that that hero with big character flaws. I I think of examples like, like Iron Man, Tony Stark. Uh, he's got a huge ego, doesn't he? Um, or if you've seen the, uh, the TV series Suits, Harvey Specter, brilliant, successful, high-flying lawyer, and he has a giant estimation of himself. 
Or then, and I think it's becoming an almost compulsory sci-fi reference in my sermons, uh, there's Fireflies, Mal Reynolds, a captain on this starship. He ends up in a sword fight. I'll tell you more about how sci-fi and sword fight go together later. Um, he, he wins a sword fight with his opponent. And he's got his opponent on the ground with the sword tip pointed at him. And he says, mercy is the mark of a great man. Jab. Well, maybe I'm just a good man. Jab. Well, maybe I'm just all right. (laughs) It's a great scene. Uh, Complex heroes are interesting. Sometimes we find characters like Superman a bit too one-dimensional, too unrealistic. The problem is he's modelled off Jesus, so it's hard to get a plot device that doesn't involve kryptonite stopping him from doing all the stuff he does. Um, He's a bit too one-dimensional as a superhero, but not Jonah. Uh, Jonah's conflicted. He's real. He's complex. He maintains his firm and defiant protest against God's mercy towards the Ninevites while accepting God's mercy for himself. He is smug. He is self-righteous, wearing seaweed on his head. But it is real and it is complex. He's flawed, but he's saved. Can you relate? Jonah's struggle of being rescued yet remaining deeply flawed resonates with the saved believer, not yet perfect, this side of creation, of the new creation, like you and me. It resonates with me. And so we can learn from him. We can learn, don't be like Jonah. And we can learn, be like Jonah. Don't be like Jonah. Have you been the pot that calls the kettle black? Self, self-righteous judgmentalism is, is an ugly thing, isn't it? We, we, we see it in, in others. It's harder to see in ourselves. And sadly, Christians, I think somehow we've often become known for being hypocritical and judgmental. Sometimes I meet people who who almost assume that judgmental is what's going to happen when they meet a Christian. That's tragic. Do you look down your nose at the life choices of someone who is not a Christian? Someone who is not yet captivated by the best news this world has ever heard, the message of Jesus. They haven't got it yet, and you look down your nose at them. Or do you think about yourself and think, oh, I'm actually kind of pretty much nailing the whole learning Jesus and living for him thing. I'm doing pretty good, especially compared to that guy. There's a warning here for you and I. Don't be like Jonah. But do be like Jonah. Cry out. In this deeply flawed prophet, there is something beautifully instructive to us as well. He cannot will his mean heart into a place of loving his enemies. He can't just choose to change that switch. He can't let his his protest about God's mercy go. He's just not there yet. But despite his determined protest, he's also not broken connection with God, has he? He has not outright rejected him. And he's responding in conversation 
we see later on in chapter 4, and relational prayer here still. And so if you find yourself wrestling with God, whether it's because he loves your enemies or he forgives the unforgivable or if he has you in a place of severe mercy, if you're wrestling, what Jonah shows us is to pray what you can. Pray what you can. Jonah's conflicted. Uh, he's, He's a prophet of God. And God does not give up on accomplishing his good purposes through him. And he goes just as far as he can. What he can pray, he does pray. He says he will go. He, he declares what is true. Salvation does belong to the Lord. So he will go to Nineveh since the Lord has made it clear that he must go. He has made that clear, has he not? And Jonah will protest again later. But for now, he expresses his thanks for an unexpected deliverance. Jonah prays what he is capable of praying, and not more. God accepts the prayer for what it is. It's a stiff but true expression of his thanks for not drowning. And so he shows us, pray what we can. God loves to hear from us, even or especially when we're wrestling. Ultimately, Jonah's grateful defiance points us to one thing. And it's his his last line, salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah continues to still teach correct theology and truth, deeply flawed and broken, but still a prophet of God. He declares salvation comes from the Lord, verse 9. And this this forms the the very centre, the very hinge of, of the two halves of the whole book and the whole story. It's the center point. And in in Hebrew writing and thinking, the center is often the bit to really pay attention to. The the psalm highlights God who who mercifully reverses. This is beautiful and powerful imagery. He, He reverses a place of death in the waves and in the belly into a place of life and salvation. Marvel at the maker's mercy in a messed up world. Marvel at it. Jonah's struggle points to a greater prophet with a greater message of salvation. It points to Jesus. And he picks up on this himself. The, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were a similar kind of self-righteous to what seems to be emerging in Jonah's prayer here. And they couldn't, they couldn't see the point. And, so that they, and they, uh, they come to Jesus. Have a look with me in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, as we start to draw towards a conclusion. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was there three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Sorry, that's spoilers for next week. Um, And now something greater than Jonah is here. A great reversal. A place of death. 
reversed into a place of life and salvation. Jesus is greater than Jonah because the mean-spirited Jonah reluctantly goes through this place of death and reluctantly brings God's salvation, but Jesus willingly goes through actual death out of his great love and mercy for you and I to bring God's salvation. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That great line from Luke's Gospel. So whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or you're not sure where you're at with him, maybe, maybe this morning's a chance where you need to, to adjust the, the attitude or the posture of your heart this morning. You can come to him broken and poor in spirit, recognizing how desperately impoverished yours and my life is without him. And he won't despise that. He won't turn away from you. He will, he will hug tight. He wants you to enjoy life with him. We have read of the surprising irony of a defiant, mean-spirited and self-righteous prophet with seaweed on his head, sitting in the belly of a fish and thankful for his rescue. So that we readers might marvel at the maker's mercy in a messy world. To be in awe at the unstoppable, severe mercy that God shows. To both a, a barely half-repentant prophet and a, 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 an evil, wicked, violent city we'll see more of next week. So whether you're here this morning, you've heard the message a thousand times and just need it refreshed, or you need to hear it for the first time today, Jonah's story points us to the truth that salvation comes from the Lord. His mercies are new every morning. So let's pray. Lord God, our maker, we marvel at your mercy and your kindness in our messed up world. And we acknowledge that we contribute to the mess. We are flawed and we are broken human beings. Yet we are deeply loved by you. We thank you, God. And may we cry out to you, dependent on your love always. Transform us to please display your merciful heart better and better in this world. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. The music team's going to come back and, uh, and, and lead us in uh, singing and, and praising our great God with two more songs.